Welcome to The 100 Podcast. This is Ed and Charlie here with you. Hope you're well. Today, we're joined by CrickViz analyst Ben Jones. Ben, how are you doing? I'm very good, mate. I'm very good. Thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Not a problem. It's really, really great to have you. And what we thought you'd do as you're here is time to talk through some of the uh, the big talking points in the 100, do a little roundup episode, focus on some of the franchise, some of the good ones, some of the bad ones, some of the trends, all that sort of thing. And I thought we'd start with our favourite team, the London Spirit, because they've been eliminated finally, despite winning their first game on Tuesday night, thanks to Scottish legend Brad Wheel. But the London spirit, I think, and I think, Charlie, you agree with me on this, a really interesting case study in how not to go about constructing a roster because they've got a very experienced core with a lot of older players in their 30s, and it feels like they went win-now mode and it just didn't work. I'd be really interested, Ben, just on your basic thoughts about how they went about it and why they've gone so wrong because they do have some good players there. It just seems like a, they just approached it really badly. Yeah, I, I think to kind of give them a little bit of credit, I think the, the win now did make a bit more sense if you think that this tournament was meant to be a year ago um, and the squad was kind of put together with that in mind. And I do also think they got quite unlucky with the test call-ups because when they drafted that squad, Zach Crawley, I think he'd just been called into the England test side, but he was I don't think he'd made his debut. Um, you'd obviously lost Dan Lawrence, who was not near, not near the England side. And then Mark Wood, obviously, you never really know how much cricket Mark Wood's going to play at any one time. And he's not really the best option in England. So you ended up in this situation where like you you lost those three guys. If you put those three guys into the into the side, it doesn't make them incredible. Crawley and Lawrence aren't amazing. Wood is is top class as a white ball bowler. But it would make a hell of a difference just to the overall feel of maybe a bit more, a bit more opportunity to, to vary selection, do a few more matchup based things. But yeah, I, th- I think they were slightly screwed over. But you're right. I just think they they got themselves in a tangle. I think in terms of they went all in on the quality of guys like Maxwell um, and Naby and Morgan and just having that gun middle order. And the problem by having a gun middle order, even if Maxwell turns up, is that by its very nature, it's high variance. You're never quite sure. You know, it, it might only come up, even if you've got three guys there who are really good hitters, they might only come off one in three times. So you're, you're kind of gambling on the fact that one of them is going to do enough in any one game to win you a match. It's when you've got guys at the top, like Denley, who's you know good white ball player, but not that destructive. Same with Papara. And it's like they're, they're just not quite put together with um, kind of substantial top order runs in mind. But I mean, the bowling attack, if, if things have come together, it, you know, Mohamed Amir just got dropped. Like that shows you how weird a season this has been. He's a brilliant bowler or has been for a number of years. And you can't really blame them too much for thinking that Mohamed Amir might be good enough to make it into their first choice side for a whole t- whole season. If you have Wood and Amir opening the bowling and then Mason Crane coming in, like you're going to win some matches. They've been a bit unlucky. They've won a couple of tight games, but then again, they play at Lords. The spirit of Middlesex persists. You can't get, you can't shake that off that easily. They will always find a way to lose. Yeah, I think what's kind of interesting about what you said, obviously, is that we had Dan Lawrence and Zach Crawley leaving those with their two young guns. But bar that, there isn't really, other than Mason Crane, a great deal of young talent there. And also that top order, as you said, isn't just very explosive. I think we said this, Charlie, at the start of the tournament. You looked at every single team in the tournament, besides from the London Spirit, and you can make an argument how they have the best opening partnership. But as good as Adam Rossington is, as much as we like Adam Rossington, he's not quite as explosive as Alex Hales. And Josh Inglis is a good player. He just hasn't come off. And I feel like that top order runs just have kind of, that lack of top order runs has really kind of held them back. Yeah, it's been a problem. I feel like, their best players, you'd argue, are probably in the middle order. And 
I don't, know, I don't think that's a great strategy. I think they're a little bit too bottom heavy. I'd also like to come around and go back to the, the roster issue, by the way, about building their squad. Because I think watching the draft back in 2019, which admittedly feels like a different world away now, but when that was happening, it was hard to shake the feeling that Shane Warne did not get the squad he wanted. I think he looked stressed. He was bringing in Dimmy, he was bringing in uh, Morgan, and they looked stressed. I remember listening to an interview with him uh, recently, and I think he wanted... Uh, he said he wanted other players. I can't remember who they were, but it was clear he wasn't 100% convinced of it. And I was surprised that they didn't have a little bit more of a rejig in the 2021 draft. I think they only made two changes, which was the least out of all the teams, which is funny because I think they possibly need to make more than others. They could have done with doing a Manchester, couldn't they? Doing a proper big rebuild. Mm. But I think... You know, to, to an extent, you want to back the players that you've that you've brought in, and you you don't want to end up in a horrible situation where you end up with the players that you got first time round that you've clearly got just got rid of, and you're having to kind of redraft them because of the way that 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 second time round it did go. It was a bit it was a bit confusing. It was you know I think a lot of the people involved are still grappling with how to do a draft. Like it's new, like mm. for all these guys, none no, no one's really been involved. But I think the been the PSL is the obvious example of a of a draft in these leagues, and I don't think there was that much experience from the PSL in the hundred draft either the first time or the second time. So maybe they could have done with tearing it up and, and starting it again earlier. Um, but I, I'm not quite sure how retention is going to work for next season. But Christ, they need to now because, as you say, it was win it was win now in 2020. It's win a year ago in 2021. They need to, you know, they need to freshen things up or hope massively that uh, Dan, that Mark Wood goes white ball only and uh, Dan Lawrence and Zach Crawley get dropped, uh, which, to be honest, both of them pretty likely. <laughs> but you're probably going to still have a few problems and a few uh, a few areas to fill. Yeah, I think for the Manchester Originals, it was much easier for them to kind of blow everything up because everything they did didn't really work. I mean, Dane Villas, obviously, with the 125k pick, we made a lot of fun of that at the time. And obviously, he was, he's not a local player now, so that didn't really work. And it's interesting because they retained Rolla van der Moe, who I think was a sixth-round pick, who was picked up before Saka Mahmood. And obviously, Saka Mahmood was a local player, so he wasn't exactly drafted. But given the Originals released him, that they could have been in those sweepstakes. It feels like they really could have, I don't know, blown it up a bit. I think they were a bit too, just a bit too conservative with it and didn't take the necessary risks to create a good team. As again, if you stick Saki Mahmood in there for Blake Collin, and we like Blake Collin, if you if you stuck him in there, that's a better bowling attack. And if you found yourself going after a more explosive top order player then, I don't know, it, it could be better. But, yeah, I just, it has not worked for them. One thing I would also say, um, and it kind of, it cuts both ways, isn't it? Owen Morgan is clearly a really good captain. Um, I, I don't think many people, other than, you know, gibbers on Twitter, but I think generally people acknowledge that he has a feel for the game or at a particular way he wants to play. Um, I think he maybe tried a bit too hard to embrace the new rules to embrace the tactical opportunities of bowling two overs in a row. Um, Spirit, I can't remember, I haven't updated it in the last few days, but when I checked on, um, well, I think probably would have been Monday, um, they'd bowled more 10 ball overs, inverted commas, um, than anyone else. And I, I think when you enter the realm of the unknown like that, you're kind of putting yourself out there as a bit of a guinea pig. They could have stolen a massive advantage on everyone else and everyone would have said, well, they didn't have the best roster, but Morgan saw an opportunity and, and stole, stole that little marginal gain by getting ahead of the pack. But actually, in reality, I think it, it might have been counterintuitive because I'm sure as we're going to talk talk later about the um, the tactical trends, it's actually quite it's actually quite unusual for the second five balls to be better than the first. And if you're bowling a lot of 10 ball overs, 
naturally you're putting yourself in a, a slight disadvantage there. So marginal stuff. I mean, it's not as important as the squad, like the, like you and Charlie were saying, but I think that's, I think it's, it's a element of why they've struggled. It is also, I think it's a part of shame worn that when everyone else zigs, he zags. And it reminds me a lot of the Rajasthan Royals IPL winning team. That team was not necessarily a team that if you looked at the strength of the squad should have won that tournament. They did it because in the early days of T20 cricket, they found advantages through tactics. And I think because of the way that T20 cricket is going, especially in England, there's less of an advantage to be found in the hundred, but he definitely tried to kind of go about things in an interesting way, bowl lots of spin, really attack it in that way. And it just, it just hasn't worked. And it's a shame because their, their bowling lineup has the potential to be really, really good. It just, just it just isn't. And I think the fact they didn't even play Mason Crane for the first game was was a concern in that sense. It just, yeah, I think they could have even embraced playing more spin to an extent. I think they could have just gone with two seamers and just said, you know what, we are going to bombard you with roll off. We are going to bombard you with Nabby, Crane, Denley. Just stick it all out there. Well, something something I looked at something when I was doing some preview work for the um, for the broadcasters, um, I was trying trying to me me and them. Um, my colleague Freddie and and Patrick and, and Rufus were um we were doing some some like analysis for the different venues and I I basically said oh Pat can you have a quick look at um at, the, at Lords and do some analysis on that please because I'm running out of time because I'm badly organised and so I but then I got a bit of time and I so I made a little pack on on Lords and it I said well you know it's been the highest scoring venue in England for the last three or four years in the in T20 cricket. And then I looked at Pat's version. He said it's been the lowest scoring venue in T20 cricket over the last 10 years. So Lords has been such a weird venue <laughs> um, to actually that we all, we, you know, us kind of T20 geeks talk about home advantage being so important in these leagues. No one really knew what, how Lords is going to play. It's been recently really high scoring, but historically really low scoring. It's like, it's, you know, we're not talking marginal stuff here. It's massive, massive fluctuations. So I think if you can't, reliably predict how your home ground is going to play i don't really know how you, you're meant to build a side con- consistently and it all plays into each other these are all different you know all, they all amplify each other if, if you don't know what the pitch is going to play like you're nervous about pick, picking mason crane and if mason and you know you, you, you those things snowball quite quickly but yeah i think i think that is that is an issue they need they'll need to sort that out and get a bit more control maybe next year when you know logistics are a little bit easier and maybe there aren't as many TV pitches that they've got to produce due to the quirks in the schedule. They might be able to have consistent, clear surfaces that that benefit them, I think, because I don't think they have this yet. Yeah, and looking at the London Spirit, we thought that they were the seventh best side. I think that's what we agreed on, Charlie, in our rankings, because we felt they had a slightly stronger squad than the Welsh Fire. Yeah, I think what we said was that Welsh Fire have a significantly better chance of winning the tournament because whilst their squad wasn't very strong and their bowling attack is, you know, was a bit of a nightmare starting off with, that high-variance approach of scoring lots of runs kind of gave them an opportunity to win games. And after two games, they actually looked quite good. And obviously it's fallen apart and now Bairstow's gone, but I think they're also a really interesting team to talk about because their approach is... Well, first of all, the roster hasn't been put together well at all, but their approach is really fascinating and they've got a way of saving themselves despite building a poor bowling lineup. They're so strange to watch. There are so many kind of bits and pieces, guys, that you don't really know exactly what their best role in the side is. And we've seen the balance of their squad shift pretty dramatically, really. I think when they dropped out Crichton, placed him with Graham White, and when instead of having a lot of batters, they really bottom loaded on a lot of bowlers and it really changed the balance of the side. I don't know if it's better or for the worst, but it's just a bit of a mess. They're, 
I don't even know why to begin with them. I'm so confused. Someone else talk, please. I just, I can't, <laughs> I can't deal with them. Any team that goes from eight batsmen to five bowlers in one game, I think deserves a lot of credit. Uh, just... <laughs> the thing is, they also that that would be cool. I'd be I'd be all over that if they had a squad which allowed you to do it. But they don't. But they also don't have a squad which really allows you to do much at all. That, I mean, I, I think in my preview like power rankings before the before the tournament, I obviously every every person with the brain had spirit and fire bottom and second bottom, and everyone basically just disagreed over which one was worse. Um, I think I put fire as bottom, um, but. That was also before Besto was called up. So I, I was probably even wrong then because I think they are better now. Um, one thing on the bits and pieces stuff, I think that's really relevant. So like uh, on our match impact, which is kind of like an MVP rating, um, the, the best bowler in the tournament in, in terms of the accumulated bowling impact um, is Case Ahmed. So he's done incredibly well. I mean, like he's you know, taking wickets and he's not going for runs. It's a good place to start. But then, then, and then, so he's the best in the tournament. But then the next best for Welsh Fire is Jimmy Neesham, who's the 12th best bowler in the tournament by aggregated or accumulated bowling impact. Now, if Neesham is your second best bowler, I mean, Jimmy Neesham seems like a lovely bloke and he's a very talented player. But he, there's a reason why he's not a gun all rounder in the IPL. He's, he's a tier below that. And I think even he would say he's mainly a bass, but he's a batter who bowls a bit. Um, he's kind of like a discount Ben Stokes or a better Ben Stokes. We'll have that conversation another day. Um, but the, the argument is, is that if he's your second best bowler, you're in trouble, basically. You need, you need, you need a bit more emphasis on, on that side of things. But to be honest, my favorite, one of my favorite games of the tournament, I won't say my favorite because I don't, I'll, I'll say, I'll contradict myself in five minutes' time. Um, but one of my favorites was the um, Superchargers versus Fire. In the, I think it was the opening weekend um, when Harry Brook went mad trying to chase that massive score that Bairstow had put on the board. And it was just, I, I was like, I, that was when we wanted Bairstow to stay for the whole tournament because it was just going to be so fun because they were clearly just going to make 160, 170 every single time. And then they were probably going to lose because they was, their bowling was so iffy. And every single... Um, kind of every single side in the in the tournament has a couple of guys who are just good enough to bully bad attacks, and that and so I think we've seen that quite consistently. I think that's a big difference from the blast is that in there are lots of sides in the blast who have really good bowling attacks but don't have the batsmen to back it up or don't have the batsmen or like have a couple of star batsmen like a couple of years ago when when Sussex had that insane attack of like Jordan Mills, Garton, Archer, Rashid. They basically had Laurie Evans and Phil Salt, and that was, and then that was it. And they didn't have anyone else. Whereas I think the 100 necessarily has more depth in terms of the batting. And so I don't think you can get away with having those re being kind of really top heavy or really lopsided in quite the same way, because I think sides are naturally a bit more even um, apart from London Spirit. But, you know, you can't judge everyone by them. But I think, to be honest, what Welsh have done quite badly, I think, is that they've not gone all in on the spinners because Cardiff is I'm oh sorry they've not gone all in on really quality seam they they ended up with iffy seamers I mean Jake Ball's a good bowler obviously he's had injury issues Plunkett um, I know that was a case of what, when he was drafted win now and all that but you can't end up in a situation when you're playing at Cardiff every week where your best bowler is a spinner like it's just not you, it's too hard the tack is too close <laughs> you need you need a quality seam attack and they just haven't they just haven't had it I really like David Payne but he's not you know one guy can only do so much. They're, they're just, they're, again, they're just a bit of a mess. They're just—they're not quite. They're, I think um, if Carl Anker, um, the football journalist, was talking about it, he'd call them an unserious cricketing unit, um, which uh, which I, I, I think is about uh, as bad as an accurate as label as I can offer at this point. They're, they're the funniest team 
I think that's all I want to say. They're the funniest team in this tournament. They are hilarious. It's better on them close. <laughs> I think that this is the thing with the Welsh fires. It's similar to the Northern Superchargers as well. It's the fact that I really can't think of a team in franchise cricket, and we've seen this consistently, that has such a weak bowling attack and yet has had some success. We've seen it for the Heat and RCB for years, and RCB have had their successes in that time. But when you have that explosive batting unit and a bowling unit that just isn't very good, you are never going to have consistent results. doesn't matter if you have, you know, Brendan McCollum, Chris Lynn, Max Bryant, whoever you want at the Heat. If you have three right-arm seamers and Ben Cutting bowling with death, it's, it's not going to work for you. And I think the fire may be, you know, I think Jake Ball's been good. I like David Payne, case has been brilliant, but I don't think you can get away with, that bowling attack on that ground if you do not have Johnny Bairstow on the best form of his life. Exactly. It's it's unsustainable, I think. I think that's completely the point, is that if you leave... I mean, Bairstow Bairstow at his peak is one of the best T20... Well, no, Bairstow just defaults as a normal T20 batsman. He's one of the best players in the world. I mean, I think he he is still somehow a little bit underrated as a white ball player. He's he's incredible. If they'd have had Bairstow for the entire tournament... It's not out of the question that they qualify. I think I think they would struggle to win because that bowling attack is just a bit too light. But it's not out of the question that they would have, you know, battered another couple of hundred and eighty. Bairstow might have got a ton. I mean, I thought Bairstow was going to make a ton in the last second in the last game before he went. And he, you know, he's too, he's too good to to not cash in. But you're right. There, there's no real example of sides who have bad bowling attacks who win sustainably. I think that again, we're talking about rebuilds for next year. I think if you go, if you look at Jake Ball, David Payne, Case Ahmed, you can see those guys slotting into a very good bowling attack. They just need a couple of guys who are a little bit better or guys who are as good as Case Ahmed or just that little level up. There's no way, like David Payne in a, in a bowling attack does not signify that it is bad. Same with Jake Ball. Like they are, they are good players. They just need a little bit of quality around them. They, and whether that's shifting overseas balance. So rather than having Nisham, you have, I know Nisham's batting has been brilliant, but you get a gun overseas bowler and that's how you make it happen. Like I know they tried to get Ngidi, but Ngidi is not a gun overseas bowler. <laughs> you get a proper world-class one and all of a sudden everything kind of comes around it and things feel a little bit more, a little bit more reasonable. And that sexy top order of Duckett and Bairstow and Bam suddenly looks like okay we can we can seriously win this thing they're not far away they're much closer to being good than London Spirit in my opinion I guess Stark would have been that in the 2019 draft that's what they're attempting that but obviously he doesn't play T20 cricket so um that's a shame give us your crystal ball for a minute about what you think their record would have been if Johnny Bairstow had been there for all eight games because they won the two he's played and then haven't won since I don't think do you think, how do you think they have gone? I know it's difficult to predict because they are unpredictable, but how much better would they have been if Johnny was there for all their games? Well, I mean, obviously it is tricky to kind of put a number on it, but I mean, they've won none of the games since then. I think it's probably fair to say that they would have won at least one or two. Um, I don't, I, again, like I say, I, I just don't think they're quite reliable enough to say that even adding Bearstow to it would make them kind of three from four, four from four contenders. But I like, yeah, they'd probably won a couple of games and they'd still be very much kind of punch as champs. They're not out of it, we should say. Like they're not, they're not they're not out of the tournament yet. There's a there is a um there is a route that they can finish third. Um, but I, th- I think if yeah, if Besto stays, they probably win a couple more games, and they're probably banging it um, with with two games to go, rather than mathematically still possible, which is you know a bit of a damning with faint praise, isn't it? 
Yeah, and before we can move on to, I guess, the contenders and the better teams in the tournament, I'd be really interested to know, from your perspective as an analyst, how would you go about fixing these teams? When you look at the fire, you said a little bit about the fire improving the bowling attack. When you look at the spirit, what would your process be for rebuilding the sides? I don't know how many players are going to be available next year. Is it a blow it all up and gamble on youth and see what happens? Or how do you go about it, I guess? Um, well, for spirit, I think... I think it is a proper tear it up and start again job. I think you you get rid of well you well you probably have a call to make on whether or not you want Maxwell or Inglis. I think that's an interesting one um, because obviously Maxwell is outstanding and is a brilliant cricket brain as well as a as player. But Inglis is on the way up and Maxi's coming towards the end of his career. Again, it's do you win now or win for a couple more years? Inglis is brilliant and I think we'll get better. Um, and so that, that that's a call to make. But I think, to be honest, they probably need to hope that that, fi- that someone else discards one of the high variance young English bats. Um, someone like, I mean, and ideally a keeper. So I know that I don't think Welshfire will um, will get rid of Tom Banton. I don't think Manchester will get rid of Joe Clark. But if if a circumstance did arise where one of those guys came up and was available, they need to go all in on them because they just need some top order firepower that's a bit more reliable than Rossington. And I love Rossington. You know, you just you just wax it. But you probably want to be if you want to be a contender, you need a slight upgrade or at least someone to go alongside him. Basically, someone like an upgrade on Denley, really. Um, I think that's probably the the idea. And then, but then with the overseas, they've got the luxury of getting they probably get rid of Amir and Nabi because they're old older guys now. And you you just need to go straightforwardly for upgrades. I don't think that I don't think Spirit's plan is bad. It's just that the players are either out of form or or, or, or basically just over the hill, out of form, or just not that good. And if, if if you go in and you want to stick the same plan of having all those guns in the middle order, it can still work. You can still make that make success of that. Um, you just need to get better players. There's there you go, professional cricket analyst. Um, Welsh Fire, obviously, yeah, they just need they just need a couple of good bowlers and then to retain the top order bats that they've got because Bairstow, I don't think will be playing Test cricket this time next year. I don't, and then you've got Ben Duckett, who I think is on the crest of a wave and is a brilliant player. And Tom Banton, you know, who knows whether Tom Banton's any good these days or not. But he, he's a really, really talented player. He could be the best player in the world. He could be awful. Who really knows? He's been to, you know, anyone who bats at Taunton, it's basically impossible to know anything about him. So I think that's probably, I think that's the key for them is probably retaining those top order bats, not panicking and, you know, shedding them too easily. Um, and then trying to, trying to just focus on one or two high quality high quality op- options with the ball. But that, and that might be overseas. They might need to change their balance a little bit. I never like overseas all-rounders. I, I'd rather just go gun and just get get one, get one of each. They're, they've got enough people around. They've got Higgins and guys like that who could fulfil that niche me role. And I'd rather see them back that and get, yeah, as you say, try and get a Stark or something like that. I don't know. It, it's, it's really hard to talk about rebuilds and all this kind of stuff without knowing the exact ins and outs of how things are going to go over the next 12 months. Um, it's not like an IPL where you just like, okay, retain Surya Kumar, Hardik and Bumrah. It's, it's a bit, it's a bit more fiddly. I think he says trying to get himself out of sounding like an absolute fraud. <laughs> I am very curious to see just before we move on to the good teams. I'm really curious to know how the, um, how the redraft process is going to work, how the, in terms of retentions and whatnot. I don't really know what they're going to do. And I'm just genuinely very curious about that. It's not a question, just a point. <laughs> yeah, I am as well, because I feel like 
with the IPL, obviously, you get these mega drafts where you can retain a certain amount of players. And I don't think that's going to happen in the 100 moving forward because when you have new teams and new heroes, you cannot just blow it up. I think that's a big reason why they're not going to have expansion franchises because you can't have an expansion franchise without a mega draft. Uh, otherwise, they'll be awful. And so I think it would probably, and this is just my perspective, be a case of you get to retain nine players and then six go back into the pool I think that's my, how, it, how it might work. Because I think, to be honest, if you can keep nine players, I don't think teams would be that bothered about losing the six left over, especially with replacements. Well, I think I think there's quite a lot. There's a lot of, for all the talk about the concentrated um, quality of the tournament, which is obviously true, I think it's most obvious in the, the, the 11s, not in the squad. I think the, the worst three members of every squad are not great cricketers. Or they're good, yeah, they're obviously that, that, that's, that's badly phrased from me. They're good cricketers. Obviously, they're elite in their own way. But... They're not outstanding. I can't afford to lose them kind of guys. You probably happily trade them for other guys who are of a similar level. I think that's probably about right. I'd like to see maybe a bit more, um, a few more spaces opened up. So maybe you could retain seven. And then obviously it's not an auction, so you can't write to match, but the equivalent of that in a draft where you can kind of come in and say, we'll take them. I think that's good because then it, it encourages you to, to try and you know innovate and be 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 exciting and be uh, you know I, I think as much as you want to have those identifiable names of okay Johnny Bairstow plays for Welsh Fire that is good he is that play that that team's icon I think that's really important you do also want that like transfer window gossip excitement of like oh my god we've got this player now like you want though you want that little bit of transfer between between the sides and I think you probably you're probably more likely to get that if you let people if you force people to gamble and chuck a couple back and say, okay, well, we, we can't keep both. I mean, I don't know who the example would be really um, off the top of my head, but say Manchester were forced to choose between, um, I don't know, Tom, Tom Hartley and, um, and and Phil Salt or something like that. It's not a great example. You keep Phil Salt, but you know what I mean? Like if, if you put people in a situation where it's like, we have to make a call between these two guys and we have to put a, a good player back into the pool. It's exci- I think that is exciting. It, it probably plays more to the people who find drafts exciting than necessarily. Oh, yeah, it's perfect for us. We love but it. I, but, love I think, but I genuinely, and that's probably quite a, you know, it's a nerdy little point, but the IPL auction is an event. And that's partly because it's, you know, a huge amount of money in a, in a cricket mad country, but it's not just a recruitment process that happens to be televised. It's a thing that people watch, that people support and people go and engage with. And I think if the hundred manages to keep it rolling in the next couple of years and keep that momentum going, you want ideally you want to get to the point where the draft is a big event that people are engaged with and supporting and panicking about and thinking, oh my God, I don't want to lose this guy. You, you want there to be jeopardy and stress involved and, and thus excitement and glory. You, yeah, and so I think trying to play into that and, you know, you don't want to basically just say, oh yeah, uh, everyone just kept 10 players and a couple of people moved around and Daniel Bell Drummond's gone from Birmingham to London. Like you want it to be, oh shit, we could, you know, we we could feasibly lose Mason Crane because Warney chucked him back and he shouldn't have. Oh no! Or like you want those kind of narratives to to develop. Um, again, at the moment, it feels a bit artificial because the teams are new, but that that changes. Like you know, we we all know this. Like new teams are new for a year and then they're same as ever, same as everything else. 
The example for me there, I think, would be the Southern Brave. You have a bowling attack of Archer, obviously you keep him, and you have Tom Mills, Chris Jordan, George Carton, right? You do not play all four of those if Archer is fit. So theoretically, George Garton becomes available. So that was the choice. It wouldn't be my choice, but that could be the choice. Welsh Fire pick up George Carton to open the bowling for them. That's the third good seamer he bats. That's where I think that's that's the opportunity you have. I think my my one bit of advice for the Welsh Fire and London Spirit, if there are fans of that team out there, move sides because as a Cincinnati Bengals <laughs> fan in the in the NFL, bad teams have bad drafts and it always happens. And it doesn't matter if George Garden's available because they are going to pick up some random team from Derby shit and you are going to have to accept it. <laughs> I think that's a really that's a really good shout. And I think that's that's the thing that um maybe people who might really like county cricket and really enjoy the blast, but don't necessarily follow leagues around the world. I think the dynamic of transfers is is what is one of the most exciting things about the leagues because you end up in these situations where it's like Mumbai uh, win, you know, winning IPL after IPL, but they're going to have to get rid of one of Rohit Sharma, Surya Kumar Yadav, Jasprit Bumrah, uh, Hardik Pandya. Like, they're going to have to get rid of someone. And th- those storylines are really compelling. And yeah, Southern Braver maybe, you know, it's, it's a slight budget, exa- budget example, albeit with the Mahela connection. But you are talking about like, this is a super strength that you've got, all of these gun bowlers. And actually you want the dynamic of the tournament to break break those things up, break up those monopolies and force people into different situations where they have to, yeah, you have to get rid of good players. Uh, you, you, don't want, you don't want too much transience, obviously, but you, you want a bit because that's, it, it's fun. It's good. You don't just want to watch, you know, people that were drafted in 2019 pre-pandemic. It's like, yeah, it's, it, it, it all feels like, yeah, like you say, the draft was in a different world. You need that update. You need those moments to like pivot from for, for the stories to change. Yeah, and if we move on to, I guess, the the, the teams who have had more success, we're going to move right to the top of the table, the Bowling Phoenix. I think it's important to talk about them because I think that one of their players, even though they didn't necessarily exploit this market inefficiency, was the biggest market inefficiency in the original draft. In the 2019 draft, Adam Milne was available for base price. You could have had him for 30K. He's been one of the best seamers in the storm, one of the best seamers in T20 cricket. Great record for Kent. And I remember specifically the Trent Rockets picking up Nathan Courtenard for 75K when Nathan Courtenard had a base price of 50K and nobody else had any overseas slots left. Well, they could have done in that scenario in that 75K range. It's just got better English players, waited to the 30K range and got Adam Milne, who's better than basically any overseas seamer in the tournament. Obviously, the Phoenix got him in as a replacement in the end for Shaheen Sharafridi. So they didn't necessarily you know, kind of take on that market inefficiency, but it feels to me that that possibility of having Adam Milne there, as we actually talked about, I think in the 2019 draft when we were talking about it previously, that is the greatest market inefficiency there. And I feel that's something that teams really should have exploited more. I think that kind of um, supply and demand dynamic, those kind of basic understandings of how a draft work will, will improve with time as well. Um, If you look at the first IPL auction, it was an absolute nightmare. And, you know, there are other leagues around the world where it's a bit more haphazard. And, you know, the BBL's recruitment process, I, I, I despair with it because it's, it's so random and there's no structure to it. It's just out of season contracts. Whereas actually the focus of a draft will hopefully improve the skills that people have in it. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was a classic example. I can understand the appeal of wanting to get called in Ireland because he's gone, but Milne is so obviously an outstanding player, albeit one with injury records. I think, again, he's probably a player who, it, it, to an extent, you're absolutely bang on it, obviously, but the idea that 
at the time of that first draft, Milne was a guy who played two, three games a year. And yeah, he played well for Kent, but, you know, bowling 80%, not necessarily going all out and bowling in the blast. It's hard to necessarily stake the farm on that. You don't want to go all in on it and you probably want to see it. And then actually him turning up in the big bash, just gone and dominating there when he was given the opportunity. He, he's almost reached a point now where it seems like a bigger error than it was, if you know what I mean. I think obviously like you're completely right in terms of the dynamic, but I really like Mill and I have really liked him for years. And he's one of the players that I always, if, you know, if I'm ever asked who should we sign, um, he, he, he pops up on those lists a lot and always has done. But now it looks like a bit more of a sensible decision because he's not made a glass and he seems to be able to get, get, it, get his way through a tournament. I know you're not talking about Adam Milne specifically. It's about the dynamic of the tournament, but it's a damn shame he's not going to the World Cup or that he won't be unless uh, someone pulls up injured because he is he is a star. Imagine him and Lockie in the same attack. It's just filth. I know, I know Tim yeah. Sidey's Tim obviously a, a great bloke and seems like a really... He's obviously a canny bowler and has done really well in T20 internationals for a few years. But like, come on, lads. He's not as good as Milne. <laughs> Lockie, Milne and Bolt, I think, is one of the best seam attacks in T20 cricket, potentially. Trent Bolt obviously swings up top, takes wickets, and then you have those two. I think that's just, it's electric, and it's a, sh- it's a shame that New Zealand haven't kind of taken that that on. But, Charlie, let's talk a bit about the Phoenix here. Obviously, we are a Phoenix-supporting podcast at this point. We're, we're really big fans of what they've done. Uh, why do you think they are good? Because obviously they have Adam Milne and Benny Howell, Imran Tahir, Moeen Ali, Lim, that, that bowling line has been good. Why have they kind of, I guess, taken a step and why are they currently top of the table? Well, I think they recruited really well. I think they've got, I think they went into the draft a really clear strategy of how they want to play cricket. They wanted players who can hit a lot of boundaries and score quickly. And that's absolutely evident in the team that they've got. They've got so many players with really good boundary percentages there. And I think a philosophy is just so important. Having a brand of cricket that they can rely on to win matches, that's always going to be helpful. Of course it is. And I just think that with the players they've got, they it allows them to play the brand of cricket they want to play pretty much to a T. I think there's maybe one or two areas you could improve. I think maybe they're an elite seam is short potentially. I feel like I think Tom Hamm's a decent cricketer. I don't necessarily think he's been at his best. I think that's probably the area I'd look to improve on. But that aside, I think they're a really well-balanced squad. And I just love watching them play. I've become a, a genuinely huge Phoenix fan. I just love them. Yeah, I think the Phoenix are really interesting because you look at that bowling attack and Tom Helm, for all his quality and all his potential, has been a serious weak link. And luckily, you know, it's good because they have, you know, seven bowlers there with Moen and Livingston. Obviously, that's changing with Moen going. But it does feel like they have... You know, they're covering that, but there's a potential weakness there. But Ben, the, the top order has been really explosive and especially explosive from a guy, uh, a couple of guys that maybe people who are maybe watching the 100 or maybe don't watch too much franchise cricket wouldn't really have seen a great deal of. Will Smead, uh, Finn Allen, you know, they've been really, really strong. Miles Hammond has now kind of found his place in the side. That batting lineup with a lot of youth and I guess lesser known guys is, is helping them a lot. Yeah, it is. It's that classic thing of like you go into the season pointing and saying, yeah, Moeen Ali's amazing. Liam Livingston's amazing. Finn Allen's going to be really exciting. But actually, it's been the guy, it's been the other guys firing that's made things a little bit easier. I mean, Will Smead. I mean, bloody hell. Like, what What a player. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be, um, you know, I, I'd seen him bat a huge amount before this season. I'd seen, you know, I'd seen clips and I'd watched him on live streams and stuff. But, like, not not tons. I wasn't, you know, I'm, I was not banging the door down saying this guy is going to be incredible. But this guy's going to be incredible. <laughs> He's absolutely amazing. I think it's his hand speed. It's the fact that he seems strong enough to hit from a solid base as well. He's got all the shots in terms of he plays 360. Uh, also, and, you know, it's the, it's the phrase we all, 
what we all have to talk about. He's got absolutely ludicrous intent. He just does not back down. There's no six, get off strike, clever cricket shit. He is six. You know what I want to do next? I want to hit another six. I want to keep going. And he, it, it kind of almost seems to like set the... I know that obviously Moeen is the is the superstar and Liam Livingston's the kind of cocksure firebrand of the team. But like in terms of like defining the spirit of that of that top order and of that batting line, Smead to me feels like the guy who like lights the blue touch paper, comes out and just goes so hard. It makes everything else seem easier because they're ahead of the rate and they're ahead of the situation they need to be in. What's amazing for me is that like I thought Finn Allen was going to be that guy, and I know that he has fired in the tournament now and he is he is up to speed. But I, I, if you'd have said, you know, a top order Birmingham guy is going to absolutely set the tournament alight, I would have gone, yeah, 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 Finn Allen's great. And they're like, no, no, it's this guy. <laughs> it's different again. I mean, I mean, we should, I should probably say um, that like Moeen has been amazing. Uh, obviously, it's it's so nice to see him in the middle order of a top T20 side in England because I know that Chennai have done it as well. Uh, I know that Multan have done it in the PSL. Um, they always Chennai always get the credit for it. Multan did it first, um, but him playing in that role whacking spin not necessarily the best spin at times but destroying it um you know it's the best thing in the tournament genuinely if you ask me to to pick one thing it's been how good moeen's been in that role because it's where he should play for england and even if he only faces five six balls for england and he hits three of them for six and they're all spin fine get in and out let the other lads come and have a go it's modern t20 cricket and it's nice that you know free to air moeen Whacking balls into the standard edge bastard and Birmingham born lad. It's exactly what you want the hundred to be. It, yeah, you're right. I'm, I, I'm not a, I'm not a Birmingham fan. Geographically, I probably should be, um, or a Welsh fire fan. But there is, they have captured the spirit of it a little bit. And I, I always say that these leagues aren't about cap- capital cities. They're about second cities and third cities and alternative cities, for want of a better phrase. Because um, you, you know, the big, the big boys with two to two teams rarely set the tournament alight. It, you know, you look at the BBL, it's, you know, the Stars have never won it, sadly, depressingly for me. Um, but even like, it's not, it, that's not where the BBL lives. The BBL lives at the Gabba. It lives at the Adelaide Oval. And like, these, these tournaments are about creating hubs outside of the capital um, that kind of attract their attention. And I think Birmingham, with the brand of cricket they've played, and we haven't even mentioned Imran to here, is, has, been, has been amazing. I would say from a tactical point of view, one, one little thing, I'm going to be boring, um, I don't think, I think they're quite vulnerable to leg spin apart from mowing um, because they're all big boys that give it a big whack. I think if they come up against a quality leg spinner who bowls well and bowls wide, bowls full and wide, um, Livingston's vulnerable to that. Allen's vulnerable to that. Smead technically looks like he should be. I don't know if he is quite yet. His record's too small. Um, I think there's an opportunity there. And maybe Hammond's good enough to kind of be manoeuvred in and around the situation so you don't have to have Livingston facing too much of it. But I could see a situation where a team with good two good leg spinners or a good leg spinner and a slow left armour um, could could take them down, i.e. Manchester on, the, on their day. Really. Manchester did yeah. just that, obviously, with Hartley, with Harrison and, and Parkinson. I think they could also is- probably do it on a pitch that isn't essentially like a dug-up yeah. pitch. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's not even the best example. I would be fascinated to see Manchester's attack play the Matt Edgebaston on that ground and that pitch. I think that would be a really good a barometer of how exactly that team is vulnerable compared to the extreme home conditions of Manchester. I think that would be a much fairer kind of 
I guess, barometer of it. But I think what really has impressed us for the Birmingham Phoenix is the fact that they have embraced the process of what they do and kind of accepted that sometimes it's going to go wrong. I think Daniel Vittori, the coach, and I think the coaching staff and the kind of team at Phoenix deserve a lot of credit for that. But what we've seen is that, you know, they'll always go hard and try and, you know, put big tails on the board. And that didn't work against the originals. They went too hard. And obviously it doesn't work always, but the way they went about things and the way they're going about things, kind of accepting the fact that you have to go hard. And it might not always come off, but it, it will most of the time. It feels like they're kind of embracing that and putting themselves in a good position because of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the recruitment just speaks volumes about that. Like they've, they've gone into the draft and they've said, we want to play cricket in this style. And here are the players we're going to sign who will allow us to play in this style. I mean, they've got Tom Abel as well, who's not played yet for injury, but he's another player who can come in and do just that. He plays a shit ton of ramps and scoops and all sorts. I think more than anyone, I think, in the blast. So he's someone who had a whole new adventure to that team as well and just play in the exact same style. So, you know, I can talk about this for ages. Chris Benjamin. Chris Benjamin. What a player. We spoke to him this morning on the podcast. Lovely bloke. Great, great guy. Um, so, such a good player. So much composure at the crease. The way he plays spin is fantastic. How does he hold his nerve at the death? I don't know for such a young lad with so little experience. But again, he buys into what they're doing perfectly. He, fit, he fits that role perfectly. As a finisher, he's superb. I, I, someone stop me before I go too far. I'll stop, I'll, stop, I'll, I'll stop you before you go too far. Because I would say that, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely a huge amount of credit there for playing this brand of playing this brand of cricket, the style of cricket. I hate the word brand. Sorry. Style of cricket. Because, because it's exciting and, it, it, it you know, it, if in a tournament that's meant to attract fans, you want at least a couple of sides that are just batshit mad with the bat and go hard. But what I would say is, you know, they were they were hop, skipping a jump in a COVID bubble from Kane Williamson playing in this side. It, it wasn't like every single decision they made up and down the order from October 2019 was about playing, you know, all out, we're going to bat, batter you, Chinaswami ball kind of stuff. They, I think that they, in a way, have, have lucked out a little bit, even with guys, and it's, through their own canny thinking in, in, in the end, they've reacted really well. Even guys like, like Benjamin coming in. Benjamin was not, that. that's not a planned out, we're going to nail, this, this guy's going to be introduced and no one's going to know, he's going to beat the spirit with six balls to go. The whole, like That was a, a good reaction and a good understanding of second team cricket, which is what you'd expect for, from their analyst, Dan Weston, who specialises in, in looking and recruiting from or, or understanding second team cricket. So you know, props to him and props to them for backing him. But like to an extent, they you know they have kind of fallen into this into this style of cricket. But I don't think that's a bad thing. Like you know the things we're talking about this being such an uncertain time and like players coming in and players coming out and it being quite transient. Like if you happen to if you get through that and you navigate those waters and end up with a side as coherent as, as Birmingham, you've done you've done bloody well and you should that, that shouldn't be a it shouldn't be a criticism. I just I just wanted to just yeah just note on the idea. I don't think it's necessarily like a philosophy. Oh, I mean Vittori is you know Vittori's Vittori, but he wasn't the coach at the opening draft and I don't think he will be next year. Like I think it's it's a little bit of transience there. But they're they're just fun. And uh, you know Imran to here. Christ what I mean he's arguably the best T20 bowler of all time. He's in the conversation. He's in the conversation as the best T20 spinner certainly ever. And he is absolutely killing it. I mean, the hat trick the other night with them, um, with, with Simon Duell going absolutely berserk on the mic and to hear like doing a full lap. That was one of the moments of the tournament as, as well. And I, you know, I talked about before the series, I went on the wisdom podcast and I was talking about the idea that success for this tournament is getting through, getting through it at the time because there were COVID restrictions were making it quite nervy, but then having like six or seven, like water cooler moments where you're like, 
things go viral or things and i know it sounds silly but like alex hell's getting hit in the balls is one of those moments it's not necessarily cricket being successful but like it was a moment where everyone was watching it and it was it was silly and everyone kind of bought into it but to his hat trick was another one where it's like this you know 40 odd year old cleaning up the tail with a wrong and bowling him as well which is all you know it's the sexiest dismissal and then absolutely necking it around Edgebaston. it was yeah they are they are by far you would say the most kind of joyous side um and maybe that's just because they're winning a lot of games um but you know trent win a lot of games and they're a little bit more canny a bit more dour um but that's no bad thing no i i i i fully take your point about the um they've kind of fallen into this style of playing a little bit but I will never stop waving my flag I will never stop waving my Phoenix flag I am neither you should Charlie. Ultra now. <laughs> absolutely, I'm, absolutely I'm never ending you're right to point out I think that obviously it isn't perfect and no team is perfect and I do think that Phoenix made mistakes through this process and that's fine it's a new thing and everyone makes mistakes but Tom Helm I think is a weakness for them and given the amount of not money they paid for him the, the high draft slot they had for him I think that was an issue and I think um, well, I'll tell you what I think ultimately in, in a year like this where all the, all the COVID replacements have had to come through they have adapted best on the fly and that's a big um, shout out to Dan Vittori obviously moving you know um, Bell Drummond out of the order trying to fix things with that top and middle order when Bell Drummond was coming in at five it didn't really work but they they messed around with it got Smeeding put Hammond down in the middle order which hasn't really happened a great deal before I think they deserve a lot of great credit for that Right, moving away from the Phoenix now, I think there are three teams with relatively similar, I guess, philosophies in terms of winning cricket games. And I'd put them down as the Originals, the Rockets and the Invincibles. And I would put them down as sides who are very bowling focused in a sense. And, you know, there's differences there. And the Originals, for example, very focused on their home conditions. We can chat about that a bit. But they are three sides with really strong bowling attacks who basically follow the philosophy, whether that's Moody Ball, Fleming Ball, whatever you want to call it, of putting up a good total and defending it with a really good attack. The Invincibles have... You know, Sam Curran, Tom Curran, Reese Topley, Saki Mahmood, um, Sondon Rai, and Tabaray Shamsi, their stats. The originals have that brilliant spin attack, as we previously mentioned. And obviously the Rockets have Rashid Khan uh, and Matt Carter, Samir Patel, all of that goodness. So they're three very similar teams to that effect. And I think when we talk about high-variance approaches for the Welsh Fire, this is more of a low-variance approach, like we see, for example, the Sunrise Hyderabad in the IPL. Uh, with that really good bowling attack with Rashid Khan, with Bhuvanesh Wakumar, et cetera, et cetera, who put up decent scores and defend it. I think those are three teams who've kind of embraced that philosophy, even though the Invincibles especially have that, a very, very explosive top order. Well, yeah, I think that's I think that's a key difference, um, not necessarily from the other sides, but certainly from what Tom Moody's done before. So like one of my favourite yeah, T20 sides ever was that was Moody's Sunrisers side, where it was, we're going to make 130 and you are not going to get close to it um, because they just had all these amazing bowlers and they were a really sexy team for that reason. I love them. Um, but what this oval side does is they kind of have the same spirit in terms of the the bowling attack as you say very strong domestic core that's classic tom moody you have that they've probably got the best domestic pace attack in the tournament or they certainly did before sakib and went off to play test cricket boo again um but they've also got those quality overseas spinners you know sun on the right again maybe the best t20 spinner of all time and tabre shamza who's in incredible form so that that bowling attack is is as you say brilliant and, extre- and extremely reliable and quality. And if you add Sam Curran to it as well, 
I think there's even more kind of batting depth as well. So there's an extra element to it. What I think is quite interesting that what Oval have done or seem to be trying to do um, compared to other moody sides is that they are going incredibly hard at the top, like really hard with like, and they're picking players to do it. It's not just a matter of saying to Kane Williamson, can you just go a bit harder, please, Kane? Or David Warner, can you try and hit out a little bit more? It's like, well, we're going to pick Narayan to open. We're going to pick Jax to open. We're going to put these guys in situations where they're just whacking it. When Curran, when Sam Curran was available, he was opening the batting and he was up there trying to take down the matchups. And Jason Roy is always going to go hard because he's Jason Roy. So I think that's, that is a big difference. That top order is not built to navigate and manoodle their way to, to 130 or maybe it is in, in T20 in 100 cricket but that kind of that I think it's there to basically maximise the power play and then what I think they've tried to do is by having Ingram and Evans and Billings is almost have like your reserves just come in and just mop everything up and they're not going to go hard at the death they're just, it's almost like we're going to do our do our work at the top of the order and then we'll just pat around in the middle overs and at the death if we can, we'll do what we can um, what I think what they've been stung by is Evans's form has obviously not been great. Ingram's form has not been great, um, although he did come through the other night. Um, and, I, and Billings has Billings has played well. I think Billings is a good player, but he, again, they're they're of a type. So I think that's the for me that's the defining thing about Oval is they are a little bit more high variance than you'd normally expect for Moody tides. Um, and they've been a little bit, and they've almost been stung for that because it, you can afford to be really high variance if those second three of Evans, Ingram and Billings are all in absolute top form. Um, they've not been. And as a result, it's left them a little bit short on too many occasions, I think, particularly against Northern. Um, I thought they, they just, they mucked that up in terms of the navigation of how, you know, when to accelerate, when not to. But equally, they've not... They've not had Will Jacks absolutely go on one yet. And I think that's, a you know, when you are placing so much emphasis on taking down the power play, one of the most destructive white ball batsmen in England, you know, uncapped particularly, um, you're kind of hoping that you get a couple every season, maybe two, maybe three innings where in an eight-game eight season where he just goes a little bit berserk. And we've not got there yet. But, you know, I think if they do, then we're, 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 they'll be in business. I think they're a really, really good side. I, I, I do really like them. They've, they've been underwhelming for me. They've made some questionable in-game decisions, but on paper still, I know it, halfway through the tournament, more than halfway through the tournament, but in terms of their, what they have, I think they are, they are a really good side. I agree. I also think on a few occasions they've been guilty of what I call having a spare man when you have a guy batting at eight and not bowling. That's been Jordan Clark. And I feel like in this kind of competition you can't really afford to have a guy who's not doing anything I think Welsh Fire did it a few times as well with Josh Cobb batting eight and not bowling I just don't understand why that's happening but I mean, they did remedy it last time around of Alex Blake coming in and that is a positive decision I think but you can't afford to have a wasted player in your team. Well, the issue was, I think, as well, was that Jordan Clark came in, and th that is the obvious call, isn't it? It's Clark or Blake as the, as the spare guy. And it's a very it's a very big bash thing to do, to have a spare guy who basically doesn't really do anything. And you don't really get it in the IPL because you've got the fourth overseas, so it kind of just bumps everything up a bit. Um, but but the thing is, Clark came in and just and fielded terribly as well. So if you've got a spare, if you've got a spare guy who's not really bowling, not offering anything with the bat, and fielding badly, then you might as well just, you know, you're, you're clearly not not maximizing the opportunities that that player can can offer to you but yeah I, I think Blake is I think in that oval side I'm not looking at it thinking it needs another bowling option I'm looking at it thinking I'd, I'd much rather have someone who can just give it a biff and whilst Clark can um Blake's done it more reliably for a long time I think I'd say off the top of my head I haven't looked at the numbers you know what can you learn from stats but I think he I think I think that's probably the better call for them going forward I was going to say, if you wanted a hard-hitting finisher, like you were saying earlier, someone a bit more explosive than Evans and Billings have been lately, Blake probably makes more sense as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
I also say, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, but if you replace one of John Clark, Alex Blake, or Laurie Evans with Jamie Overton, this side is considerably better, I think. I cannot believe I'm about to say that, actually. But I do think the fact that they are kind of going hell for leather with this kind of not really preserving wickets approach uh, at the top of the order, and then having quality guys at Billings and, and Ingram is good, but it does leave them with that weakness. And I do feel like Jamie Overton is a terrible T20 bowler. Statistically, I believe he's the worst T20 bowler of all time. I know he plays at Taunton, so that's probably not exactly right, but at least statistically in terms of economy rate, worst of all time, over a 1,000 deliveries, worst economy rate, I believe. Um, he is not a bowling option, but what he is is a really powerful batter, and we've seen this over the last couple of years. doesn't average much, but he strikes the ball and he hits boundaries. I do feel like if you were to replace either Evans or Blake with Overton, that side is considerably better. So I think that is basically what they're missing in my mind. But I do think there's a way of them winning this tournament even without that. Yeah, I mean, like, to, be, to be honest, I, I still think I've, you know, I've, I've had the, the boffins behind the scenes look at, um, you know, percentage wise, who's who's in the best position in terms of qualification. And Oval are in a weird situation in that, like, they're, they're almost more likely to come in the top two um, than they are to qualify third because of the way that the permutations work so it they, they could end up in a slightly peculiar route to the final if they get that but to be honest i'm 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 now less sure about their progress because of the absence of sakib um he's obviously their best seamer um but they do just about have enough i think to still play the same kind of cricket um and it's to not disrupt their plans too much i personally would put them as, as either second or third favorites from here um probably behind Trent and still for me Southern. I still think Southern are great. Um so I think there's a there's a there's a route to, to victory for Oval. Um but it's not it's not as clear as it was 24 hours ago when Sakiba Mood was still going to be steaming in on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, and I think the thing is they have such a good bowling attack. I think they can deal with Sakib's absence. I think when you do have Reese Topley, Tom Curran, you know, there's such a strength of domestic player there. I do think it helps. I mean, they're going to have to bring in Brandon Glover, I assume, for Sakib. Yeah, who's not, you know, he's not an he's OD. He, he's, he is good, but it's it's, it's, it's a downgrade. Not. It'll be a downgrade, whoever you brought in, to be honest. Yeah, he's not Sakib, but nobody is Sakib Mamoun. I think that's fair, but I do think they still have... You know, they still have a, a strong squad there. I think I would still back them as one of the stronger teams in the tournament. I think they do the fact they do have such a strong English core, especially with the likes of Jax and Roy at the top of the order, and then obviously all those bowlers, I think makes them not only a team that's competitive now, but also a sustainable team, which I think is something that, you know, obviously we're not going to talk about right now, but in two or three years, I still think this core of players is going to be really good for them. Let's go on to the Manchester Originals then. Obviously, home track advantage is huge for them. They've picked... Well, basically four spinners in the last ma- uh, last couple of matches, if you include King, Colin Ackerman, the greatest off spinner of all time in there as well. You've got Matt Parkinson, Tom Hartley, who's been really, really good, uh, Calvin Harrison, Colin Ackerman. They're definitely a team that are playing to their home advantage, Charlie, in the fact that they have all this spin on the Manchester track that is slow in turns, and then they have a top order that is basically based to take the game away from teams and win chases within 30, 35 deliveries. Just put it out there. And I think... It's a very good way of putting a side together for Manchester, but with five points from eight, really, in the four home games they've played, it just hasn't quite worked for them. Yeah, I do think they're doing pretty well in the whole. We spoke to an analyst, Max Backhouse, uh, some weeks ago, and he was very interesting, gave us a lot of interesting insight on how they recruited their squad. It does make sense for Old Trafford. I don't think they've quite nailed their balance to the starting 11 just yet. I do think they're a battle light. With Carlos Prefer at six, Harrison at seven, I think I'd both want those guys, I want both of them to be just one spot lower, I think. It doesn't quite give me the confidence that they have the batting to win games. Obviously, the spin is great and that will win the matches, but 
I also want to point out that the day then they left out Parkinson, which I mean, they didn't get, they didn't pay for it in the end because it did get rained off. But that was a questionable decision. I remember texting you, I just thinking, what the hell is happening here? Why have they done that? It was, it was strange. So I think there's a few interesting decisions there. I don't think the balance is quite right, but they do have resources. I think they can be decent. I think we said this actually that if you took out Carlos Brathwaite from this team and replaced him with Nicholas Poran, obviously they can't do that, but they're a significantly better side. And we love Carlos, he's very fun, but Nicholas Poran offers a lot more with the bat and you're not necessarily losing too much with the ball if Carlos drops out. So I do feel like they have been hurt in the overseas player regard a bit more than other teams, especially given Lockie's only just got into the team. I think they've been hurt by that as well. So I do think that, is it, yeah, that that's really holding them back. But you know, I, I still think that you know that they've they've just missed the mark. So I, I think it's also their seam options. When you have those good spinners, it'd be great to complement that with a really high class seamer. And they don't really have that alongside Lockie, which I think is a shame. Yeah, I think that's that's the issue, isn't it? I, I'm a big fan of sides who you know prepare awful wickets and bag <laughs> and and have a lot of spinners. I think it's great. I'm I'm up for it. Um, but I think it, what, what I do think is quite funny, um, to be honest, is that they've almost, it's almost like someone's told them that that's a good thing to do in a T20 league, but they didn't tell the batsman, they didn't tell the batting recruitment that. Um, and so you end up with a top order that is incredibly vulnerable to spin. Um, and so I just, I, I think they've almost walked into, they've, they've really tried and their bowling attack is, is, is cool. It's really cool. I mean, Matt Parkinson's an absolute hero. And then to back it up with all those like slightly interesting spin options, either veterans or kids. And it's like, I really like it. Um, you're right, the Brathwaite is a place too high, but you, you know, it's not the end of the world. You know, Sydney Sixers won won the BBL with Brathwaite kind of playing a similar kind of role. And I, he was further down, but it's not, it's not, it's much from muchness. Um, but yeah, ending up with the top three where you've got Phil Salt, who's maybe the worst player of leg spin in <laughs> or like in terms of getting out, he's one of the worst players of leg spin ever. Um, you've also got uh, Colin Monroe, who's surprisingly not great at it, even though he's mm. a left-hander. And you end up in this situation where like they almost lay a trap and then walk into it themselves. And I think, I think if you have another year, if we're talking about rebuilds and what you do, I think you, you get, you get players who are better against that bowling and you get players who are better like that. Nicholas Peran being an absolute perfect example. So you get Peran into that side, you get another top order player who's maybe a little bit more uh, uh, kind of secure against spin. And we talk about the idea that Phil Salt, he was someone that I brought up as an example of someone who could be let go. Part of why I was thinking about that is he doesn't really suit Manchester's home ground. So actually he he wants to play at Cardiff or something where it's short straight and you're just bopping everything into the river. Whereas actually big outfield at Manchester, I think he he will struggle going forward. It's not, I don't think it's a blip. I think it's a a structural thing. Um, But other than that, like I, I think they are they're an interesting side I, I, I don't mean they'll qualify um for the for the top three mm. but I, I think there's been a lot of um you know cause for cause for celebration and they've, they've added quite a lot to the tournament as well just in those having those pitches I know people moaned about them early on and it was a shame that they were almost skewed more towards the start of the tournament because it'd be better it would almost be more fun if it was just 160 plays 170 for a week and then mm. all of a sudden these raggers arrive it was but actually it was like it kind of came a little bit too early and people got a little bit bored I think um but you know so be it. But I think I think they're in, they're an interesting side, and they've also got the best helmets, um, yes. which is which is valuable. Better than Trent. Yeah, I think also that that it would be nice to see Phil Salt play for the Welsh Fire because he is Welsh, and I feel that was a little yeah. bit of a dark spot for the tournament, given there are well, I, I can't really think of a great deal of really iconic good Welsh players out there. Just get him in the Welsh Fire side. Yeah. What I would say is I think they're kind of maybe approaching it a bit like 
Lancashire would approach it in the sense that you don't get many great spinners in the T20 boss. And so you don't necessarily need to worry about that when you are Lancashire. But when you are the Manchester Originals, Charlie, that's something you need to consider a great deal more. I think that might have been a bit, a bit of a blind spot for them potentially. Yeah, maybe. I think they're a team that's obviously very well geared to winning at home. And clearly that's something which you know is a success. But as we've seen here, you lose one game to rain and suddenly it's not the path isn't quite as clear anymore. It's not quite as easy. I'm not sure they're a team that are amazingly well balanced to playing on other pitches as well. They've really put their older race into that one basket, I think. And I don't know if it's necessarily the most flexible approach. I don't see too much flexibility there. I mean, as we saw, the one main change they made is leaving out Matt Parkinson, which doesn't, to me, suggest flexibility as much as a stupid decision. So I guess that's maybe something to have to look at in the future with subsequent redrafts, maybe. Perfect. Let's talk Trent Rockets then, because even though Stephen Fleming isn't the coach, it does feel like they are kind of going with that Fleming strategy of putting runs on the board like CSK and then backing a really good bowling lineup. And ultimately, that's what they're doing. And we're seeing their batting lineup play in a weirdly kind of restrained way. Obviously, Dowd does play that way. Dowd Milan, that's how he goes. But Alex House is playing a more restrained role. And Darcy Short, Charlie, is playing a restrained role. I know Darcy Short hasn't quite been as good as he was when he broke through the last couple of years, but he's playing a weirdly restrained role to the point where we went to see him against the Oval Invincibles over the weekend. He patted two down the ground in a chase of, well, in 65 balls, they did well over 100. He patted two back and then kind of scooped it straight to short fine leg in a very passive way of getting out. And it feels like, I don't know, I feel like Darcy Short is just not really playing like himself and that tall porter itself is playing within itself. Yeah, it's a really odd one to watch. It does feel like a tactical decision on their behalf to take the game deep and not hit as hard up top. And I don't really understand why when you have players like Hales and Short who we know have the potential to be so explosive. It just doesn't feel like they're using the resources they have in the best possible way. Maybe Hales is making his own personal decision to take it deep in those situations. Maybe that's what he thought suited the situation best. I don't know, but... As someone who obviously isn't privy to what they're thinking, what the attackers actually are, it does seem like a deliberate decision. It does seem very strange. Short in particular just seemed almost neutered, maybe. He just doesn't seem like the same Darcy Short we you know, spoke about before the tournament as being potentially one of the more destructive players in the competition. It's very odd. And I think <laughs> it sounds pretty mean, but when he, when he got out on that third ball against Oval, we just laughed. We just thought it was really funny because we saw it coming. It just, he just didn't seem comfortable. And... I don't know what, what's up there, but it's odd to watch. It's been unusual, I would say. Yeah, and I think that that is... It's a shame for them that I think they're not trying to... I think it's just a shame that they're not letting Hales and Short loose. Because I think what they're saying is that, Alex Hales, you are one of the best T20 batters out there. Go win us a game by taking it deep. Whereas I think the solution, and this would be my way of going about it, is when you have Rashid Khan, Matthew Carter, that that strong bowling attack would be to say, oh, Alex, just uh, go out and win us the game in five six oh five six success. Go destroy it early. And then we have the batting depth with Sanat, with Mullaney, with Lewis, however you want to shape it, you have the batting depth then to just win it from there. So I, I really think that their, their approach should be completely different. Just say, look, Alex, go win this game now. Don't let them take it deep. Just win it now. And I think that's a mistake in my mind. I agree. Because I think that what they've got basically is two ultra-aggressive batsmen in Hales and Shorts who could just destroy the power play. 
and then a load of guys who can mop up. It's not dissimilar to Oval. I mean, David Milan is maybe the best mopper-upper in the world. Like, he is brilliant at that, in that role. So let him do that job. Trust him to be brilliant in that role. And as a result, get the best out of Hales. I mean, Milan's maybe been the biggest beneficiary of Hales' absence from the England side. He owes him a bit of, he owes him a favour. Tell him to actually be the guy who, you know, he's the, he's the cushion, he's the, back, he's the backdrop to your brilliance. And then as a result, I think you you give yourself a higher ceiling and not that much of a lower floor. I think they could still make a lot. They could still do really well. I think the most interesting thing with them is that they bowled more spin than anyone in the tournament. And obviously that's largely because of, you know, even being at Trent Bridge and you've, you know, we've got Old Trafford being the way it is. Manchester have still bowled less spin than them because you've got Rashid, you've got Carson, you've got Samet. These are guys who are genuinely really experienced, canny blast bowlers who've played a lot of Trent Bridge as well. I mean, not in Rashid's case, obviously, but he's got the quality to succeed anywhere. But I think that was a really good bit of recruitment. Getting a local spin attack, I think, is, is quite nice because pace, you know, for all the nuance it is, it's, it's not quite as relevant. Whereas I think understanding a venue as weird and quirky as Trent Bridge uh, I think that's a really relevant thing. And we we talk about it with Hales rocking back and hitting it towards the uh, towards the road in the short stand. But like with a bowling attack, I think it, it's as relevant. But yeah, I, I think they are they look the side that have improved most on their pre-tournament predictions. I think, and I think that's largely because the bowling attack has the the seam bowling has overperformed. I mean, Marshall Delanger rocking up and just being brilliant was like I think that was that was it has there been a better example of like a bonus performance like him just being incredible like he basically no one expected much of him at all not because he's bad but because he was coming in so late and they're not their seam bowling was their weak point in the, like all the way up and down their list their seam bowling was bad. And as a result, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, this guy is bowling 93 mile an hour and he's tearing it up. And then Wahab comes in and, you know, he is still a very, very underrated T20 bowler. I know he's now had to leave. And so I, I don't know if they've been able to get Delanger back for this game. Have they? Um, do you know about that? It's kind of up in the air, isn't it? Are yeah. we, we're not exactly sure because if if Wahab's gone and they can't get um, Delanger back, and I don't see why they shouldn't because he's playing for Somerset, so it should be easy enough. They yeah. are left with seeming, a seam attack of Sam Cook and Tim Van der Hookton. And with all due respect to Sam Cook, he bowled very well the other night. That's a potential weakness. And Tim Van der Hookton, very fond of him as a player, has had a really, really bad tournament so far. It just hasn't worked. So I do think if they, they will get him back, surely, but it's a, it's a definite weakness. Yeah, I, I, I think there's no question that it was, it was their weakness. They improved upon it, and they've, and I think that's been largely why they did so well for a few games because it, 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 it just kind of raised the bar across the board. They had no weak points. And then now, yeah, as you say, both excellent cricketers in their own right. I mean, Sam Cook's an excellent, uh, excellent uh, first-class bowler in particular. But you're talking about yeah, the weakest set of pace bowlers in the tournament, you would say, um, particularly domestically. And so they need, they need to try and try and find some solution to that in the next few games because, I mean, they're probably going to have a bit more time than, than the next two matches as well because all being normal, they will be qualifying for the, for the, for the eliminator at the very worst, you'd think. Um, and so they they need someone. They're going to have time to try and finalise that that last piece of the puzzle. But I think I've I've been so impressed by them, um, particularly with their use of matchups and um, with the bowling. That's obviously you guess what you've got Rashid Khan and then spinners who take it either way. I think that that really helps. But you know you can have the tools and not use them properly. And Gregory has used them really effectively. And I think he's 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 a player who obviously is so associated with the most obviously absent side in in the in the hundred in terms of Somerset not being in the in the, it being represented with a team. Um it, it's a kind of straight it's an interesting quirk that he's he could well go and captain the winners 
and B, he's, you know, he's kind of Mr. Somerset and actually he's going to be Mr. Rockets for, you know, lifting the trophy potentially. I think that, I think that's good. I think that's good for the tournament. I think the one thing I would say on that bowling attack is that Lewis isn't bowling himself and that's not necessarily too much of a problem. He isn't a great T20 bowler. But when you do have a seam attack that's struggling, you think he can maybe stop him for another couple of overs and also someone else who could. And I know he's not played every game due to a couple of reasons, but Stephen Mullaney isn't bowling. And yeah. I find that weird because I know he, I know Stephen Mullaney is Stephen Mullaney and that he is what he is. And I, I think people might be worried about how a guy like that will do in franchise tournaments. But it's weird to me on a pitch like that, which is kind of suited to them when they have a weak seam attack, they could get a couple of sets from him because we've seen guys like that succeed. It's not just Benny Howell. I think a better example would probably be Rajat Bhatia um, back in the days of KKR. That's probably more of the Stephen Mullaney thing. And I do think there's a track record of bowlers like that working. So I do think that Gregory could still use his resources better. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair point. I think they, there's, there's, there's opportunities there to find creative solutions to their their seen bowling weaknesses. I mean, you could you could even see someone. I mean, Gregory bowling with the new ball would would be an option to even just while it's swinging for a couple of overs, just see what he can get out of it. But equally, it's something of a slap in the face to to, to Tim and Sam there because it's like, well, how how do you how do you suddenly leapfrog us in terms of being the pace bowlers? But equally, if you're looking at it from a broader perspective, that's probably the time when Gregory is is most relevant is when the ball is still doing a little bit. You don't want him later in the innings when it's not because then he's kind of just fodder particularly at Trent Bridge yeah I, I I think it's you know let's not focus too much on the negatives there's a huge amount to like about Trent Rockets and I think that they've been put together with a good amount of thought and a good amount of reliant reliance on the blast which is which is nice because I think the tournament being so obviously different to the blast um is is, is going to attract a certain level of coverage and a certain type of coverage and discussion but as as my my colleague Freddie um, Wilde is always fond of talking about, like the blast should benefit in some respects from this because it will it, it adds a level of intensity and scrutiny to it because teams are going to be looking up and down at all the time trying to find the best players and the best tactics and particular styles that they can then recruit for the hundred and that's why I'm very keen to keep the blast not being played at the same time as the hundred because it's a a really good tournament in its own right and I don't want to detract from it but also I think there's a real obvious kind of not not like feeder tournament as a, as a negative but the opportunity for people to prove themselves in very particular contexts and be it Samit and, and Carter nailing it at Trent Bridge and thus being the spin duo for maybe the best side of the tournament. There's, there's all those kinds of examples up and down. I think, I think it's an important element of the tournament going forward, fingers crossed. And before we get on to the Brave, who I think are a really fascinating topic of discussion, there is a team called the Northern Superchargers who are basically taking um, you know, T20 tactics and throwing them away. We've seen the Rockets, the Invincibles, all of these sides know that a good bowling lineup will work for you. And what I think the Northern Superchargers have done, and you know, I don't know if they've just kind of accepted this vibe, is they've just accepted that they are either RCB or the Brisbane Heat, and they've done nothing to change that whatsoever. They've accepted who they are, and I think that's a as an approach that hasn't really worked for them. And beyond that, I also think, I don't know how you look at this, Ben, but I just feel that the Northern Superchargers are a side where they have very obvious weaknesses. Yes, they have Adil Rashid and Majiba Rahman, but you can get after that pace attack. Yes, Chris Lynn's really destructive, but when you're opening up with him and Adam Live, you know exactly what you're going to do when you bowl them. You're going to open up with spin. I just feel they are a side who are not easy to beat in terms of personnel, because they have good players, but they're very easy to know how you plan to beat them, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, I, I often judge sides when I'm doing professional work with, with teams and stuff. I'll judge I'll judge them by how easy they are to plan against. And it's like particularly with players as well. There are certain players who you're just like, oh yeah, I know exactly what I'm doing here. This is not a difficult conversation to have. And yeah, Northern are a, a classic example of that. In yeah, you go spin at the top, you keep the high pace for some of the guys down the order who aren't necessarily of the highest quality, and then you see off the good bowlers and and, and bash the trash. But to be honest, I think they are they should be a hell of a lot better than they are. Like I I re- I really really like the core of their bowling attack. I think Mujib, David Willey, and um, and Adil Rashid is as good a three bowlers as you gains, particularly in terms of early on, like going going to in the power play, taking wickets, restricting runs. I think that's a brilliant three bowlers. The fact that they've not been able to find anything which works around them, I think, is is a, a damning indictment. There should have been more thought put into that. That the guys who they've got are Brian Brian Cast who can't bowl at the death, even though he's got all the raw materials to be good in that role um, in terms of pace and height and bounce, but he's not actually very good in that role statistically their best next seamer is Matty Potts and Matty Potts wants to bowl with the new ball and you can't take overs away from Adil Rashid and Mujiba Rahman and David Willey in the power play because guess what that's your strength don't weaken a strength to strengthen a weakness and so you, you're left with just like it's all a bit nothingy it's a bit it, you lose the quality you lose the benefits of it because they've not sufficiently planned around that core I think it's one of the it's one of those things where like they almost wasted it. You know how like Man- in the first draft, Manchester massively wasted their incredible first starting position in terms of all their local players. It's a bit like that with Northern where it's just like, guys, this is, you, you were in a really good spot and you, and you slightly mucked it up. And they've even had the benefit of someone like Harry Brook coming through, which is not a bonus. We all know Harry Brook was going to be a star. He's not come out of nowhere, but he, he's a player who you might have expected to maybe score, you know, 100 runs across the tournament, strike at 130, 140, but not necessarily be that great. Whereas actually he looks like he's ready to go to another level. And if you've got a guy stepping up like that and yet live, Lynn, Willie, I mean, obviously Willie had that incredible game against Spirit, but generally you're not talking about consistency that's allowed the youth overperforming to, to, to be maximised. Uh, do you know what I mean? I think it's, it's frustrating that you can have guys like Willie having those matches and it's not translating, it's translating into odd wins, not into, yeah, consistency across the formats. I mean, lose that that game they lost to Welsh Fire on the opening weekend, like I say, one of my favourite games. I was so willing them to get over the line, mainly because I want the home side to win in every match because you want, you want that atmosphere to, to keep kicking. But also it was like Harry Brooks stepping up and slapping bowlers over, over you know, over cover for six. I was like, this this could be a template for, you know, he's about to have a Maxi Bryant season from a couple of years ago for Brisbane. And now it, it wouldn't matter if he did because everything else around him is is just not quite there. They're just, they just, they, they look like a side that haven't planned properly, to be honest. Yeah, I was, I had the uh, distinct pleasure of being uh, at Lords for that Spirit Superchargers game. And let me tell you, it was some experience, but it was weird because I felt like obviously Superchargers won that game with, ease but even then i felt like they got quite a few key decisions wrong i don't think they use their resources particularly well i think i know he did well and took three wickets but ben rain coming in for jordan thompson to me was a pretty bizarre decision um I, I, there were so many times in that game where i thought this is the wrong decision but somehow it's working for them and i just fear for them going forward because i feel like they're getting rewarded for making the wrong choices and they will repeat those decisions and it won't be as successful next time so I, I i do think that's a danger for them that they end up going down that path next season and not doing as well i, I to be honest i think that it, again if we're talking about rebuilds i think they've maybe got the easiest rebuild because it's so clear the players that are superfluous and the players like even guys like chris lynn like i i think chris lynn's a really really good player 
But if, you know, if you ask me right now, if I'm Darren Lehman and I'm deciding whether to keep him or not, um, I'm, I'm throwing him back and I'm trying to get someone else because he's not, there are guys who can do what Lynn does in, in, in the blast who whack pace and, you know, come off one in three times, one in four times, one in five times um, and struggle against spin. You can get that domestically. Like England is very, very blessed at the moment to have a lot of those kind of players. What, Northern Mead is a guy who can do it in the middle. Um, that means that you don't have to have Willie dragged into the middle and you can leave him in whatever role you want. You can have him kind of floating up and down the order. They just need a gun, middle order bat. Um, they need Ben Stokes to retire from Red Bull cricket. And all these kind of, you need, they, it's very clear what they need to improve on, um, which is get a, get a good death bowler in that allows them to maneuver their attack earlier into the innings and bowl everyone in their right phases. And then I don't, I don't think that they're that far off at all. Um, do I think that they're going to do the rebuild properly and nail it? No, because as just the way that if you've put together this team, I don't know why you'd necessarily expect them to get it right next time. But, you know, we can but hope. I'd like them to be good. Yeah, and Aaron Finch, I think, just changes that team dynamic completely because he is just, and we, you know, you can you can debate how good he is compared to the best players in the world, but his record in England, especially, is just dominant. And I think if you stick him at the top of the order instead of Chris Lynn, and then maybe you use that overseas slot, which is currently, I guess, Dane Villas, um, into some sort of bowling option. Uh, I, 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 I don't know who exactly that might be, but uh, someone who can operate at the death. Um, that that really, I think, changes things positively. And I don't know if that's they're exactly going to be able to do that correctly because I think, you know, this is a personal thing. When I look at every coach in the tournament, I'm usually fine with them apart from Darren Lehman. I know he had success for Deccan Chargers a long time ago, but I don't think he's a particularly great T20 coach, in my opinion, from what I've seen over the last couple of years. So I don't know how they're going to go about it, but... I agree with you. I think there's an easy fix there. It's just about how you go about doing that. They have also been a bit unlucky with Faf. Um, yeah. Seeing his concussion. Faf's obviously an outstanding player coming off the back of um, some really good IPL form in recent years. And I think, yeah, he's he's not he's not an elite T20 batsman in his own right, but he's of a level which is good, very much good enough to, to improve their chances and to improve their performances. We're talking about Dane Villas being there overseas. It's not, yeah, it's not Faf Duplessis. Um, and I think it, particularly what he brings, I mean, you know, it's an intangible, but he's a very charismatic guy and he's a very good leader and he's a very good cricket brain seemingly. And he's, I think, you have someone like that marshalling the attack and maybe, you know, influence influencing decision-making on the park a bit. Um, I do think it, it would have had a, a disproportionately big effect on their season if he'd been available throughout. But I mean, he's also a guy who you're probably not going to retain because again, he's someone that you can probably do better than in a normal season when everyone's available. Um, as long as things aren't overlapping too much with the CPL next year, you'd expect the standard of overseas player to go up by 10, 15%. Faf might be the kind of guy who falls away from that. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that he should, but you know what I mean? I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't come back um, unless they increased them to four overseas, um, one in the squad, which I, I wouldn't be surprised to see in which case he might be quite a canny retention. I think the Northern Superchargers are actually a really interesting team just to kind of um, link to a little bit of a talk about tactical trends in the tournament because they are very well positioned, I think, to make use of this 10-ball over thing. You have Matty Potts and David Willey up top who obviously move the ball, good new ball bowlers. You could potentially use them there. Majibo Rahman, very useful in all kind of facets of the game, really. You could use him, Adil Rashid, when you get on a roll there. I do feel like they're a team who have, I guess, a, a definitive blueprint for their side about how you might use those 10 ball overs. And I just don't think they've quite got it right yet, but I think it is an interesting kind of microcosm about how this tournament might use bowlers in these 10 ball overs and stuff. I think the idea that, I mean, it also, it, 
that relates to how easy it would be to fix them as a side because your death bowling could be solved by one bowler because one bowler can bowl the last 10 balls. And actually you get a guy in there who's got a decent record and suddenly the, the, the cracks are covered quite easily. They're papered over very straightforwardly. Yeah, Willie bowling with a new ball, bowling 20 out of the first 25 was the obvious one going into the season. I think, um, I don't know whether you want to touch on this separately, but in terms of the tactical trends, one thing that has been really obvious looking at the seam, the, the, the breakdowns of the 10 ball overs has been that when wickets have come in the first five, they've not come in the next five if you bowl the 10 ball over. And that's that's largely because that's what you'd expect in cricket, really, isn't it? It's like you lose a wicket, you go a bit more defensive. Um, but we also see it with runs as well when it's a very cheap first five, it tends to be a very expensive next five. And I do wonder whether that's because I, maybe that's been dragged down by the the fact that there haven't seemed to have been those overloads with the good bowlers bowling 10. Teams seem to have been keener to have their almost their part-time bowlers or their fifth, sixth bowlers bowling 10 in a row, getting it through when the matchups are nice, rather than giving it to their best bowlers. And thus, as a result, the overall record for those 10 ball overs would improve. You know what I mean? So if David Willey's bowling with a swinging new ball 10 in a row, he's got a flipping decent chance of taking a wicket with the last five, as well as he does in the first five. Whereas actually, it, it seems to have been more, you know, Tom Hartley bowling 10 in a row because there's two right-handers at the crease, in which case he'd expect someone to line him up by the end of it. So I think that's, as we see the rules become more intuitive to captains, which is um, polite for the captains knowing the rules. Um, I think once we get to that stage, I think we'll see in more intelligent use of it. And yeah, Northern might be, a, I mean, to be honest, in terms of yeah, Darren Lehman's general tactical approach, it does tend to be quite straightforward, quite simplistic. Um, so I don't think they'd necessarily, in that respect, be the ideal side to go after it and to really try and exploit it, which is a shame. Because um, yeah, I think they've, they've got a lot right there. But I think if Stokes is around, Stokes is a captain who does like to try try and do those kind of things and he's got the personality to impose himself on Lehman and say no I'm going to do this um, and so actually I, I think that that could be an, an interesting trend if or it, depending on how how many games the England players are available for next summer if it's more than just two we might see a slightly different kind of approach from Northern because Stokes is, is a different kind of captain. Right, the final team that we can touch on is the Southern Brave. They were, I think, everybody's favourites heading into this tournament. I think everyone kind of said they had the strongest squad, obviously headlined by that incredible seam attack of Archer, Mills, Jordan, Garson, et cetera, et cetera. They lost their first two games. Everyone's worried about them, but they have come back strong. I think it's very much the Mahela J. Award and the curse of always starting really badly. I don't think he's ever won a first game in any franchise tournament he's coached in. And then coming back strong. And I think they are finding their feet now a few games into the tournament, Charlie. Yeah, absolutely. I think it took them a, a couple of games to really work out their tactics and their balance of the side. And I think they quite got it right first time round. I think lining up in the first game with two left arm spinners and Briggs and Dawson didn't really work. And especially when you got Lintot in your squad as well and why I felt like you wanted something different. Uh, I think their power play bowling was pretty, pretty sus as well. When you've got someone like George Garton, obviously, he's great up top. Why aren't you using him there? Um, but they are now and it is making a lot more sense. I think they've worked out what their team is and how they're going to play. And they're going really well. So I, I'm fully back into the finish strong here because they've got it all in hand, I think. I thought that early on, I mean, God, I, I love him, but some of James Vince's decision-making were, decisions were, were really, really iffy. 
I mean, ending up bowling like Danny Briggs at the death at Cardiff. It was like, it was like just in all the, there was the left and right hand, there were some issues with like um, the field up. He was like, Garton was clearly trying to bowl wide. Yorkers and they had third man up. It was, it was a mess. It was a mess. Um, and it, 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 it smacked of like, oh my, I, I remember when, well, when they were not from two, were they not from two or one from four? And then it was like, yeah, not from two. And it was like, Oh no, they're about to have like the season, like the dream, the, the horror season where like they just can't win, even though they're the best side. And I was like, oh, no, I can't. Having tipped sunrises to do really well in the IPL this season and, and then them crashing out at the bottom, I was like, I can't professionally, I can't sustain this anymore if, if, they, if they're badly. Um, but actually, yeah, they've come, they've come good. And the reason they've come good is because they've got a load of really good bowlers. I mean, you know, Garten is incredible. We all love Garten, but Timal is the one. Timal Mills is going to play in the World Cup and he's going to, he's going to start in the World Cup. I think um, he is, he is on fire and he, he looks like he's, you know, he's, he's done what Morgan demanded of him, which was to prove himself in a higher standard domestic tournament in England. Um, that's what the opportunity has been given to him. And, and he's taken it with both hands and he's out bowled Chris Jordan and Chris Jordan's a very good bowler and he's looked you know a class apart to be honest their, their actual figures are not far off but I think the 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 way that Vince has used um Mills I think has almost betrayed the fact that he, he sees him as the primary threat particularly attack in an attacking sense I think Jordan may be more of a defensive option but I mean I think if when now that's clicked and obviously not, they're not going to be able to add Joffre to it but that core of that attack is 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 good enough to blow any side in the in the uh, in the tournament away, you would say, and particularly if they can keep Garten as a as a power play wicket taking threat, which obviously is where he kind of buys his trade generally. Yeah, I think to be honest, I'm, I'm I, I still want like a, a iconic knock from one of the boys with either either Dukak or Vince or something just to kind of go to the next level to show that they've got a bit more in the batting, even if it's just Whiteley stepping up and you know hitting some bombs and making thirty off nine or something just like i think they need another another threat to be confident that they've got enough to see at home but to be to be honest it's hard to see uh, it's hard to go into a game that they're involved in at the moment and not see them as favorites um and that was always the case pre-tournament but i think that whilst they struggled early on they've delivered on enough of their their obvious strengths um that yeah like i say any any team that's coming up against them it's hard to see an obvious route to success other than just blowing them away with the ball. But that's, you know, that's the route to victory against any side. So it's not that nuanced, is it? But yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to see them win it. Um, I'm a bit, I don't know, I'm a bit iffy about a side not based in a city winning it. I want, I want, a, I want a big boy. I want a, uh, I want a Birmingham. I want a Manchester. I want, I want that kind of focus of, yeah, a second city winning it. But at the same time, um, T20 cricket has been Hampshire's thing for years and they, and they were so good. And that, that kind of 10, 2010, 2013, that kind of era, um, they were brilliant. And so it would only be apt in some respects that a side based at the Rose Bowl is is, is the first winners of the tournament. Um, Mahela or no Mahela, um, they're clearly a, a really impressive outfit. And yeah, I, I think it would be it would be nice for them to uh, to win with such an obvious bowling heavy strategy. Because like we say, the, you know, us nerds, us geeks, we... Uh, we, we bang on about it. You, you win games with bowlers. You don't win. Yeah, you don't win games with bats. Yeah, I do think there's almost a shout of them not quite having reached their potential yet. When you think about what Quinton de Kock can do, and he has done, you've got Paul Sterling there, who's obviously class. James Vince, Delroy Rawlins, Ross Wally. There's loads of explosiveness here, and I do feel like there is an extra step to be taken 
for this side moving forward. Ben, we really appreciate having you on. It's, it's been class. Really enjoyed chatting to you. Before you go, I'd love to know, who are you tipping to win this tournament? Both with your head and your heart, I guess. Yeah, hearts. Um, the heart is by... Uh... Is by Vauxhall Tube Station. I'm gonna, I, I want Oval Invincibles <laughs> to come through for for personal reasons with Freddie working for them. Um, but I, I I do think that um, Southern Brave should win it, um, and probably on the balance of you know we're rewarding the side that's that's maybe put together the best side um, and is peaking at the right time. You would say um, it, I'd like to see Southern Brave win it. But I'm going to say very boringly, um, and it's what I've said basically every single game. My, my girlfriend's bored of it ad nauseum. I've been going on about it. I just want every game to be really close, really good, and I don't really care who wins after that. I'm, I am primarily supporting the hundred above all else. I want the I want the composition to win or cricket to win, and uh, you know which group of uh, which group of blokes or which group of women come out on top in any game. It's secondary. I just I just want good cricket. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ben. It's, it's been class. Um, so thank you very much for coming on. Uh, please check us out on Twitter at Podcast 100. You can find loads of great content there. Listen back to some of our other interviews with analysts, players, some good stuff there. But thank you very much for listening to The 100 Podcast and we'll speak to you next time. <laughs>